Hey fellow fraud fighters, I'm Jimmy Fong, CCO at Seon, and welcome to the Cat and Mouse podcast. Seon is fortunate to work with businesses such as the likes of Revolut, Nubank, and Patreon in the fight against fraud. But with this podcast, we want to provide a comfortable space for people to talk about the daily challenges, topics on the horizon, and ultimately give us all a better insight into the mindset of fraudsters. And with that, on with the show. Hi, uh, thanks for, for letting me say a few words on what's been a career here, Jimmy, in terms of preventing fraud. I'm John Marsden. I started my career in, in payments in, in Barclays, looking after merchants, acquirers. Certainly an interesting introduction to fraud when you, you, you sort of wake up and realise one of your merchants has done a runner with several million pounds. Uh, that was a rude introduction to it. I think I've always been attracted to the subject. My father was chief super in the police. It is a sexy subject. I mean, if you if you, you you can say at a party when you're a youngster, you fight fraud, it goes down quite well. The question, you know, one of the questions that come up in this career is, is, you know, what have we done over the years to prevent fraud and how do those fraudsters then organically generate beyond that? And, you know, in the UK, and I'll look at the UK in particular and then expand it out to a few other countries, we have this concept of an identity, but there's no official registry of an identity. So over the years, we've proved identity by a name, an address, a date of birth. And actually, if you think about it, Jimmy, the only unique thing in your identity from a UK perspective is actually your date of birth, because everything else can change, including national insurance numbers, passport changes every time you issue it, driving license number uh, should stay consistent, but uh, there is issue numbers there. You know, so, uh, and none of those documents actually form an identity document. So a passport, travel document, a driving license, a license to drive. That's contrary to what we see in other states. So that initially led us to, we needed to facilitate digital interactions and to be able to prove someone's ID at that level. It was really the credit reference agencies that came up with the best solutions to be able to prove that that identity exists and confirm the date of birth. That was great for a while. And, you know, you can bolster that up with negative and, and, and you know, fraud databases and fraud observations to, to build some trust in there. But very quickly, the fraudsters realized how it was how they could compromise that that led on and then we you know we saw data theft uh, as a massive issue uh, id takeover as a massive issue why we were all relying on those simple bits of data to confirm an identity they were so easily compromised and and, and became the breeding ground for you know the criminals that's why they were doing these hacks that's why they, they were buying this data off the dark markets that's uh, how they were doing it so over the years you know and the one beautiful thing of that, it was silent as well. There was no friction involved in that interaction. It's a digital interaction. I take those details off you that you expect to give me, and I confirm them with a, a third party in under a second. What a fantastic experience. And if you remember the UK, well ahead of everyone with those digital economies, and that enabled us as a, a, as a, a, a country to embrace digital. In fact, some of our legislation about, you know, supporting people putting a tick box to confirm that they accept the contract really supported that as well. So the government, the legislature and everything facilitated digital commerce, but the fraudsters took advantage of that. We've had many discussions about a scheme in the UK over the years. We've had ID schemes that were thrown out before a general election some uh, 18 years ago, I believe. 
and then obviously manifested into the, the the verified scheme for digital ID for government, which was you know a mixed blessing for for, for some people. Some people enjoyed the experience of being able to authenticate straight away. Others felt that they were better with government ID, and there was a little bit of contention about who was doing what. Um, and certainly within the industry, there was a lot of discussion about you know why was the majority of the verifications going to one party. So it's no surprise that the partners pulled out. It's no surprise that the government have decided to move on from that. And they have introduced something around the digital identity scheme, which is very similar to that, but more uh, and probably more commercially focused. Park that to one side, come back to this. What do we do next after we've got this, this purely compromised data? So data can be compromised. If that fed into KBA, so you know, me as part of Equifax, we were the primary vendor of knowledge-based authentication based on credit file in the UK for a number of years. Um, do you know, that was great. And if you ever get a consumer to go through that process and then say, I don't know how a broadster would have got past those questions. The issue is it's knowledge and knowledge is transferable. If I can compromise that knowledge, I can therefore compromise your knowledge-based authentication and authenticate myself. I'm not gonna talk about the techniques to get to those answers, but once you know, it's too bloody easy. So we had to do something else, didn't we? We had to move away from this paradigm. And you know, uh, me as a credit reference guy saw the point of friction in someone picking a document uh, there was a travel document or a, a, a license to drive out of a, a wallet and showing that digitally. I'll name some of the guys in this on Fido, Jumio, you know, uh, OCR Labs, all these people were offering friction into a process and actually a lot of error as well. This is an interesting paradigm because catching from analog to digital is an issue. Getting someone to take a good photo that can then give you the intelligence you need and the, the veracity you need still has that element of, well, difficulty in terms of taking the analog to the digital, but also a trust question. So if I can get into the chip, well, I have to read the image to get into a chip on an e-card. Well, it might give me a little bit more trust. If I can do a selfie and a liveness selfie, it gives me a bit more trust that that person is who it says it is. And I can understand why it's grown. But it's also not a panacea. It's not foolproof. Uh, they do have false positives. They do have false negative rates. There is still that need for what we did in data ID terms of bolstering it with fraud controls to spot what's uh, anomalous. Just to add, John, uh, the, the thing we see again and again from customers that, that we're helping is actually um, the marketing churn of that as well. Uh, meaning half of the people that you ask for that selfie to take out, you know, your license from your wallet, you have to bother doing it as well. So there's an element of that, you know, you're just losing that top of the funnel churn, uh, which is, yeah, which is crazy for the, the business or financial service as well, right? Absolutely. So if I, I work back a few years, there was a survey done, no, it was actually out of a, one of the banks, and they considered that one of their lines the person applying, if they'd entered the application process, was already worth, they'd already spent £50 to get them there in, in above line marketing, et cetera. Uh, to get them to bail out of a frictionful process is, is a nightmare. And we see that all over the place, Jimmy. I mean, you look at the introduction of 3DS, you know, uh, what, that 12, 12 years ago, something like that. You know, at the start of that, there was 20% dropout at checkout. And for a retailer, that's all their profit gone. Um, certainly frictionful 
application processes make people drop out. I'll be fair, and I, I don't find this in some consumer interviews, so I'm maybe not normal, but I will share this with you. I will drop out of an application process if they ask me for a document because my wallet is on the other side of the house and I really forget about it by the time I've checked my emails or moved on to something else. So, you know, I might I might reconnect with that business later and I might go through the process. I might not. Who knows? Uh, so we do lose people that way. Some of the consumer work I've done recently is particularly interesting. So Obviously, when they don't see friction, the consumer, they don't know what's going on. And you don't really want to disclose to the world what fraud prevention measures you've got anyway. It's interesting if you see how people deal with uh, someone like PayPal, who you can actually visibly see there's a check going on. And I, I don't believe that that's not thought about. So as a consumer, I can see some security is happening. Let's move that forward into to, to, uh, IDMV. Out of a series of interviews recently with consumers I was doing for an IDMV provider, we saw that certain individuals felt that the provision of ID established trust with that community, whether that be a bank, so they trusted other bank accounts that had gone through that process, or Airbnb and a ID verified identity is, is felt to be more valuable. So you're starting to see that equation in the mind saying, well, I'm going for this. Everyone else is going through this. So therefore, there's a level of trust in my mind to, to this organization and the network it supports. I think that's important. Not many people in those surveys actually saw like I did that it was a hassle getting up from a desk and go and get my document and that, you know, what can I say? That's just me and I've admitted to that, but it certainly wasn't common. You also had, I think everyone had a second moment of thought before they entered their, uh, they passed over their identity details. All of them had a moment of doubt, okay? And this is often where the breakdown comes. So I'm having a moment of doubt. If I know your brand, and I trust your brand, I'm more than likely to go ahead with the process and put it to one side. And that was evident in the interviews. If I don't know your brand, and I have any feeling that, uh, that you may not be trustworthy, they will bail out. Now, one of those respondents was redirected to a third party application that was branded as that provider's brand. They had no understanding of who that brand was the trust in that brand, and they certainly were not prepared to put their own identity documents into something that they, they really didn't feel was, was safe. So that's great. So we can recognize the consumer has this dialogue about trust going on in their mind. We just need to be mindful of that. I don't think that the issue of friction is the primary issue. And as I say, maybe people are like me and they come back, but the issue of trust is, is probably the thing that's breaking down mostly in, in, in these relationships. Um, after all, you want a product. Most people have gone through IDMV recently with um, getting the NHS passports, of course. Uh, totally different process for totally different people and depends where you are in the, the UK. Um, but most people were accepting of the process, even though it wasn't real time. That found uh, an interest to me because we as providers, we're all striving. And this conversation, friction-free, fast delivery, you know, get it into their hands. Depends what you're doing. It's got to be right in context. So people waiting for the NHS Act to say, yeah, you're okay for an hour and a half, they are absolutely fine with that. They're prepared before they go to events. They were prepared 
way in advance and they do it. I'm sure I'm going to find the exception to the rule. He was trying to get in a rugby stadium two hours before, trying to get his COVID pass. Now, I'm sure there's that, but that's kind of not a reflection on technology. That's back to, John, what you said about brand, right? It, you know, it, it was a necessity as well. It gave you... Um, yeah, allowed you access, it affected your lifestyle, but then the brand, right? Uh, you know, people uh, can make that easy decision in their head that, oh, this is the government NHS. Uh, thus, uh, yeah, it's kind of a, it kind of helps accelerate these kind of uh, acceptance and normalization of this as well. Totally agree with that, yeah. I think it's also you make the risk decision, don't you? So if I asked you for a passport to buy something for 25 quid off someone or other, you'd go sod off. <laughs> Uh, you know, so your contacts comes into it. And that, that includes the, uh, we'll come back to PayPal payments, you know, one-click payments. Brilliant. You know, absolutely brilliant. One-click, done. Uh, gives all the delivery address and everything. Uh, I love it. You've got to make that risk decision. Would I take one-click when I was trying to, you know, open a bank account? I used to. It used to be that easy. And it still is in many occasions. But there is this element of, you know, the, the, what trust does that consumer see in your organisation? I mean, what, what are other countries doing? Well, you know, EIDAS is coming to uh, the European region and Verify was our nod to EIDAS off the, the UK base. A government-backed digital identity. It's interesting because we have seen the Scandinavia one, the bank ID, which was, was provided by the banks, but accepted widely by everyone in, in Scandinavia. That really helped them go digital, although there's relatively small numbers of people in those regions. It has been successful. It's also been compromised. I'll come on to that compromise in a second. And we are pushing out with digital ID across the rest of Europe, and some are more advanced than others. And of course, Europeans, um, ironically, not so adverse to. Um, I'll bring this back into the UK stuff in a minute. Not so adverse to to having ID cards, which is strange, you know, considering where they come from. The privacy and the GDPR rules are massive over there. Why? Because, you know, governments have used data to segregate societies and victimise people over the years. If you're an, a, a German or an Austrian, you understand what the regime of Adolf Hitler did in that term of dividing and grading people and segregating people. Uh, equally, same's happened in across Europe, you know, in Spain, etc. So they they tend to be a little bit more um, private with their data. However, all of them have accepted that a national ID card is the way to go. A national ID scheme, which is then becoming the, the electronic version of that, that's interesting. Our government is being a little bit more commercial about it, and they've introduced this uh, digital identity attributes framework, which looks similar to what we've had before. I think the issue for them is consumer perception. So if you look at the statistics, um, significant amount of feedback received from members of the public. In the main, the feedback told us that individuals have concerns about digital identity products, particularly around the use of their data. So there's a large percentage of individuals who are against the idea of an ID scheme. It's a real problem for the government to manage to take this into the next uh, stage of development due to the public's lack of a uh, of sanction it, it's kind of weird from my point of view when we're using passports and driving licenses to prove identity and no one seems to have an issue with that but when you talk about an id scheme which is really making those documents fit for purpose we seem to have an issue with it as a society so 
We'll see where that goes. Tot off the press. I think the government issued the, the policy paper in September of this year. So please take a look at it. I want to, John, revisit some of those items you mentioned around, uh, particularly Scandinavia, some of those bank ID schemes, because there is, uh, I think, this strong kind of understanding that those have been uh, a bit of a silver bullet in terms of helping to uh, give trust and act as a secure um, framework to operate off. But it sounds like there is no kind of silver bullet, I think, is, is kind of your view, John. You know, this is really easy demonstrated it. So um, in the UK, we pretty much did a very good job of using the types of technology that CN has or or threat metrics or one of these providers to to be able to discern a good consumer from a bad consumer. We put all the ID on. It was doing a pretty good job. Actually, the fraudsters still got around that. Why? They just started, you know, the, the, the spate of APP is absolutely compromising everything. It's looking from a criminal point of view and going, where's the point of weakness? Now, we as vendors, and this brings us on to what I do today, we as vendors see this from a siloed point of view. We think in different terms. We think about compliance. We think about ID. We think about fraud. And uh, and we try and blend this into some professionalism. You've got to remember, our criminals don't think like that. They just look at opportunity. How can I break this? So as you're trying to concentrate on one thing, they've realized that, oh, darn, the weakness is on the other side. When it comes to ADP, the weakness was the consumer. I now can't compromise your SMS. I can't get the out-of-band to take over your bank accounts and transfer your money. Ah, but you can do that for me, can't you, Mr. Consumer? I tell you what, I'll scare the living daylights out of you, and you'll press those buttons, and you'll say, pay him £20,000. Thank you very much. So even with something like bank ID, you've got a person and the person becomes your point of compromise. Okay? So if you look at something like, really admire this, Barclays, £10 million above the line advertising to help consumers stop fraud. And why? Because their biggest threat right now, not the technology, it's not the application, it's not account takeover, this is really locked down. It's you as a consumer. You are the weakest link. So how do Barclays make you the strongest link? I think it's so admirable. Why? Because you're advertising to the UK. They're not all your customers, Barclays, but thank you ever so much for trying to keep us safe because someone has to. So yeah, even with the government ID schemes, you know, a level of assurance is going to be you know, high for someone who's a genuine customer. So you tell me where your weakest link is. Who do I compromise? Who do I scare? You know, it's not hard for a confidence fraudster to drum up a story that motivates someone into, into action, especially when we can't trust our government to follow their own rules. Watching you, Boris. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good uh, segue into, okay, so the, the, the consumer is the, the weak point here, and that's kind of the nature of fraud or kind of um, any kind of abuses, kind of human creativity on working out what's the weakest link in that chain. What about other bigger schemes we've seen around the world, like the Indian uh, ATAR scheme, for instance? Is it all subject to, if the text be locked down, process is always, you know, kind of strong enough on one side, fraud, fraud moves to a different bit. What's your kind of view on that, John, then? Because these are obviously massive schemes. Yeah, I don't know much about the case. To be fair. Uh, actually, Jimmy, do you want to just give me a flavour as to what that was? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, ATAR um, is digital, digital ID for India. Um, 
but using bio uh, biometrics as well. So it's the idea that folk had to literally get registered, you know, billions of people, right? Kind of digital ID, but with a bio uh, kind of mix into it, which is kind of well seen as a, as a very interesting, um, not an experiment, <laughs> but the world's watching closely, right? To see how does it shore up and help cut out fraud, enables people, et cetera. I mean, I'm sure it's a very high-tech scheme. It's not the only time to do it. I mean, you know, your signatures, your fingerprinting, it's chilly. Uh, yeah. It's on your ID card. I think the technology will help you identify where the first party has done the actions, of course. You know, biometrics are pretty damn good. And I'm sure that the Indians have put, you know, great technology in. Still comes back to how do I compromise you if I can't do that? And I, I, I just compromise you as an individual. And let's look, look at what we're doing at the moment. Everyone's being warned about WhatsApp messages from your family saying, you know, I've had this. Can you, can you help me out? You know, this. What am I doing now? I'm not approaching the company direct because you've got great security. What I'll do is I'll compromise what I can, which is the individual. The next question comes, how do you control your human behavior to, to stop that? I mean, the biggest risk we face from fraud today in, in the economy, it's actually a company. You know, where you are today, the, the, the biggest issues are phishing-generated ransomware. We've had James Hall and co. this week that's, you know, been down for a couple of days because of ransomware. We had NHS departments go down from ransomware. And we never know how many of these ransoms are actually being paid. We don't know how successful they are. It's a big brand reputation thing for you to have been hacked. And I'll tell you something else. People can get in for your systems. There can be penetration. However, that's getting harder and harder. It's the same paradigm. We've locked down those areas for entry. I guess Target didn't with the air conditioning system, but we learned from that. Hey, you know, so we've got really good IT security, but it doesn't take a a lot to be able to compromise the individuals. To pick up your thread around, uh, you know, the individual being the weak point. Now, we we had it ourselves. You know, we're a we're, you know we're a startup. You know, literally fighting fraud. And then we had a, a couple of our teammates receive WhatsApp messages supposedly from uh, one of the co-founders and CEO uh, asking them exactly the same message that you mentioned. Um, hey, you know, we need some help. We're in a different, a difficult situation. Can you just wire over something to get us out of it? Like crazy, right? Um, so it's, it's very much targeting the individual now and trying to play off, um, if you like, a bit of social engineering. Uh, so so you're, you're absolutely right on that. And yeah, and th this is an interesting one with social engineering. Do we really understand social engineering? One of the big things that intrigued me was when I was with the larger corporates. I'd, be, I'd go through these training courses on social engineering, and they tell me these big, long, convoluted, and true stories about how people have been befriended. And um, I have the pleasure now, or, or, or the displeasure, whichever way you want to look at it, of working with some fraudsters, some ex-fraudsters that now look at preventing crime. I didn't really realize how easy uh, it was to socially manipulate someone. I didn't realize the level of data they need is nowhere near what I might consider to be a, a compromise. Even you, Jimmy, if I phoned you up and said, you know, hey, uh, is Liam in the office today? And you said, well, no, Liam's at his sister's birthday party today. Okay, thanks. I have probably got enough to get into your office. <laughs> Doing some work, I'll turn up at the door. I've left my idea. We're doing some work for Liam, but I know he's away at his sister's birthday party today. Can I just go and get my ID badge? Yeah, sure. Come on in. 
so every little bit you say can be used as social engineering and i don't think we understand the risks one of the things we do with we fight fraud is we look okay we look at the cyber risks but we also look at social engineering risks and the physical risks so if we can't get into a system we'll get into a building and, and drop a device onto their their system just to prove we can do it we've had listening devices in the uh, boardroom of trading companies before now and uh, and all that and the reason for that is to say a criminal looks at all these methods and we should as much as we need to and maintain the security of the digital channels keep the fraud prevention up because that won't go away we'll still get you know even brute force attacks and sophisticated attacks on our online channels of course we will but equally we've got to expand that a little bit to look at people risk because that's where everyone seems to be finding the weaknesses now you mentioned with the organization i think it was started by um, tony sales right and his background is very much you know black hats turned uh, you know white hat if you like What's that meant to you kind of to get an insight and to work in day in, day out with that kind of mentality? That's a really interesting question, Jimmy, because, you know, you brought up with these disciplines and, and to think about things in a, a slightly different way and a language that we talk in the fraud prevention community. They don't talk about account takeover. They don't call, talk about application fraud. You know, they, they, they don't have the labels that we have. So it's yeah. kind of interesting interpreting the language. What strikes me most is the blatant disregard for everything we've tried to do so that they don't really care how we're trying to stop them. They only care when it, something changes. So, for example, if they've got a nice scheme going, a night nice application scheme, and you stop it, they might spend a cursory moment or get hold of the techie guys and say, do you know what's going on here? How can we fool it? And they might try a few times. But in essence, they don't really care because they just move on to the next provider. So it is true what we've always said in fraud prevention, you know, don't be the weakest link because they will just, they don't care where the money comes from. They're not brand loyal for God's sake. They, they don't really care. Um, and they also don't care that it's some ma magical hack. They're not like us, you know, getting really excited about machine learning algorithms and things like that. Just make it work. And if that's people compromise, we'll compromise the people. If it's listening device, if it's system access, we'll, we'll do what needs to be done to, to get that done. Ironically today, what have we got? We've got people who specialize in bit parts of each crime. We always have, so, you know, criminal networks where informal networks of almost people with a uh, talent in one uh, way or another to add to the, the, the gang. That's still going on, it's going on in a digital way. You know, people in Romania are hiring people in the UK to do bits that are physically done over here and we're hiring them to do technical bits. It's a big economy. There's a million ways that they can be creative. And I think that's probably one of the biggest learns is the creativity. And that comes back to us thinking about silos, or us thinking about structures, or us doing our learning as put us in a position of not being able to see things from a utterly creative point of view. What can I do holistically to, to compromise this? So that's one of the biggest learns of, of dealing with Tony. We also have Sol, who's uh, Solomon Gilbert, who's uh, an extremely good hacker. That's interesting too. He also thinks very differently, uh, extremely paranoid technically, um, because he knows what he could do. Uh, yeah. And then the counter side to that, we've got um, uh, Andy McDonald, ex-head of terrorist financing from Scotland Yard. 
that's incredible, you know, to see those playgrounds. That it's not, uh, it's not a marriage made in heaven. You know, one's a copper, one's an ex broadster, but we get magic going. The sparks between that in, in that relationship that that really helps us do that. And then uh, Nicola Hardin, Dr. Nicola Hardin of uh, Lancaster University, who keeps it all based in some academic science. So working with the team with these really diverse backgrounds has been really useful and insightful. They have something special, which is an ability to reach into the criminal mind that I've not seen. I've seen that from a a Canadian company who does similar, but um, in terms of UK, I don't think there's anything more advanced than our thinking there. Yeah, just to add that, I think hearing that it's coming from all these different perspectives is the key, right? And that that allows, uh, quite frankly, a new way to look at threats and opportunities because uh, that's exactly what it is right it's uh they work some both ends like that yeah absolutely it does i think the brilliant headline we're gonna have for the community this year is we're gonna interview or we're gonna get andy mcdonald so the ex head of so 15 to interview emilio de giovini uh, the ex head of a mafia family that's an interview. So i'm looking forward to that early next year it should be really really intense I think we need to see things. I don't want to glamorize the criminals, but I think we as prevention community need to see things. We need to hear things from the criminals' point of view to be able to understand that holistic view of how they view an attack, what constitutes and what sort of tools they will use against us. Yeah, 100% on that. And John, this has been a a fascinating chat. Um, It's been amazing to hear from your deep experience, uh, your view of... ID and ID fraud and how that's evolved over time from all the way in your banking days through to, uh, you know, some of the seminal credit bureau agencies through to tech and then where you land today with We Fight Fraud. Um, but for the audience, uh, where can uh, folk, uh, can you point them to a certain uh, direction if they want to find out more about yourself, John? Yeah, absolutely. Myself, um, you know, I'm, I, I can find me on LinkedIn the usual way. Uh, but so we fight for www.wefightforall.org and that will take you through our services. And certainly I'm willing to talk about anyone to anyone who wants to stop crime. That's really important to me. Brilliant, John. Awesome to have you on. And uh, yeah, look forward to hearing. I, I love the element of that uh, head, uh, ex-head of the Italian Mafia uh, going live next year. Thanks again, John. Thanks. Cheers, Jimmy.